0: Welcome to the Global Missions Inc. Podcast. This episode features David Luff. It was a real encouragement for me this morning to see the young people on the front row because I was going to ask them if they would to come and sit on the front row. And so, this kind of a, a confirmation, I guess, for some of the things that I wanted to say because I've just really had the young people on my heart and there are some issues, there are things that that they wonder about. And they they they're serious about their faith and they want to walk with the Lord and they have their struggles just the same as we have our struggles they're no different from us and so one of the things that that they wonder about and I wonder about sometimes is what is different about this move of the Spirit versus the move that has gone on that their friends are associated in, in their school, Uh, some of them in Christian school, some of them are perhaps attending other services with their friends, to be with their friends, which is understandable. Uh, they want fellowship with their, uh, with, with other young people and especially those that are walking with the Lord. And I guess I'd just like to say that there are many, many, many similarities. Don't get caught up in the fact that they're just totally night and day difference. There's not. In many, in many ways, We all started at exactly the same place. We all started dead. And so we have that in common. I'd like to read a verse of Scripture from Genesis, the first chapter, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, uh, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, he created them and god told adam and eve to be fruitful and multiply why did he want why did he say that you can begin to see the mind of god and his purpose and his desire it, it sometimes you know we 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 fail to see that that god has created us in his image and so Being in His image, there are many things that we share with God. We have feelings, we have emotions, we have intellect, we have the ability to make choices, we have the ability to choose, make judgments, and so on. These are all after the nature of God. When He talks about the image, He's not talking about some physical bodily image. He's talking about the inner person, the thing that makes up our soul and our spirit... Is that is that we share with God, and so he wants he wanted Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth because he wanted a big family. Amen. He wanted he wanted sons and daughters after his image to fellowship with to enjoy things. We it, you know it, it it just occurred to me this morning as we were praying together. Uh, in the in the prayer meeting before the service, that God must take such pleasure in being at these camps, because he just kind of walks around, you know, he's in the dining, he's in the dining hall, and he's just walking around and he's just watching his children fellowshipping with one another, encouraging each other, loving each other, laughing together, telling stories together. Poking fun at each other. It just must give his heart joy to see those that have been created in his image to be fellowshipping together. And then we come together like this and we fellowship particularly with him. We come and give thanksgiving. I think about the the times around uh, the table in, in, in our home but because we have dinner at our home after Sunday services and the the family will gather around the table and the grandchildren and the children their spouses and they're all there and and sometimes I will just sit back and just watch them just enjoy watching them interact with each other watching the the brothers kind of go at each other and And they talk in a language I don't even understand, really. (laughs) But they understand, and it's fun to watch that kind of interaction. And you just take joy in that. And that's the way the Heavenly Father is with us. He enjoys seeing His children fellowshipping together, growing up together. Okay. Now he says when it's created after his image, he's speaking about the image really of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And who is who is Jesus the image of? The Father. In other words, Jesus was the uh, was the one who reflected the very nature of God. So if we have trouble understanding the nature of God, we just look at Jesus. We read about Jesus. We meditate on Jesus. We look at His example. We see how He was. We let the Holy Spirit bring Him into our our innermost being and we... We see Him and we want to be like Him. And the Holy Spirit helps us to grow, to become like Him. And be shaped into His image. Not in the way we look physically, but in that part of the inner man. The scripture says in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of creation. If He is the firstborn who comes next? He's first, who's second? Third, fourth. Who is it? It's us. <laughs> because he he wants a big family. He is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Adam and Eve were created in a sinless state or condition. The, re- the thing that's important to remember about this is that even though they had a physical body, there was nothing inherently evil or sinful about their flesh when they were created. When God completed the creation, including man and woman, He said, indeed, it was what? Very good. After it was good... And then He created Adam and Eve, man and woman. He said, now it's very good. So there was nothing... We tend to think, well, there's something just terribly wrong with our flesh. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But in the beginning, there was nothing wrong. There was nothing inherently evil about the flesh. Now, when He created Adam and Eve... He put them in the garden, and you've already heard about this, and we won't spend a lot of time on it. But he put them in the garden, and he said, there are all these trees. Somebody said there may have been thousands of trees that were bearing fruit. He said, you can eat any of these trees, from many of these trees. But then he pointed out, well, there's one tree that you can't eat of. He said, he didn't say you can't. He gave them the choice. But he said, if you do eat of that tree then you will surely die. He didn't say, it wasn't dying because I'll punish you by death. It was says if you eat of that tree, you will kill yourself. You you will end up dead because I have created you in a way that 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 path will lead to death. It's not that I'm going to personally kill you if you're just going to gradually kill yourself. So he said, don't go. Don't, you know, it would be best to avoid that. But the interesting thing was, is that he made special note of another tree in the midst of the garden. What do you think that tree was? It was the tree of life. Now, something is interesting, I think, about the fact that God displays or characterizes these things as fruit on a tree. And I think, you know, the tree of life, where does life originate, true life, eternal life, that quality of life that lives forever, where is it, where does it, where, who's the source of that life? Yeah, I think, I, I sort of think of it this way, you can think of it however you want to, but I see it as, As God was that tree of life, the fruit of that tree was Jesus. The edible part of God is Jesus. He's the part you can eat. And the New Testament is full of of telling us where Jesus told us what? What did he say you must do with me? We must eat him. We must drink His blood. We must participate in Him. He is the edible form of God. He is that fruit that we can partake of. And so Adam and Eve had the choice. They could have eaten of that tree of life and I suppose could have lived forever. But they didn't choose that. And God gave them the choice, and they they chose to go a different way. Now, the thing about it is, and this, this language may offend some, I don't know. But when Satan came and tempted them, or tempted Eve, and you know all about that. We won't go into the, the details on that. But when they chose to disobey God, they took on a, a, the... they a, a, At that time, there was it was kind of like they were they were they were morally neutral until that point but then they partook they disobeyed and they took on the nature of the one they decided to follow and so they took on the nature of satan and so death began to work now up to now us and all of your friends in other churches were all together. We were in the same place. We were all born in iniquity. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, then every descendant of Adam and Eve had that same nature, the nature of Satan. <laughs> and so but God, but God. <laughs> Being who He is, He had an original purpose, and so He was not going to to give up on on things. He made a proclamation of redemption. And He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed, the children of Satan, and her seed, Jesus Christ, He... Christ shall bruise your head. In other words, he will bruise that part of you that will cause fatality in you. But you, Satan, will bruise his heel, which resulted in Christ being crucified. In Galatians 4, 3, and 5, whole lot of time passed Kelvin covered a lot of that in his in his ministry the other day. We won't go, we won't cover all of that. But fast forward to this, Galatians 4, 3 through 5. Even so, when we were children, we're in bondage of, under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time can, had come, in other words, when the time was exactly right. Not too early, not too late, just right. Someone has said, God is seldom early, but never late. He's right on time. And when the fullness of time, in the, in the decision of the Father, the time was right, then He did this. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. All of these words are important. He said, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Now why was it necessary for Jesus to be born of a woman? He had to come into this world... The same way we all come, he had to take. He had to come taking on that humanity. I think there's a sense in most people, maybe all people, that the only way that people could ever be redeemed from their state of, of their fallen state, the state of death. Is that God would have to do it himself. No one else could do that except him. And so that's what he did. He sent Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, he had to come subject to the law, <laughs> the same as everybody else was. <clears throat> so he had to, he had to be subject to that law just like The rest of us would have to be to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, what I want to point out here to you, particularly young people to hear this, is that he didn't say, he said to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, he came to save us from our sins. But that was just a precursor to what his objective really was, is that we might receive the adoption as sons. God is still after that original purpose that he had in the very beginning in Genesis where he said, multiply and fill the earth. I want a big family after my image. But... Adam and Eve messed it up and then we've all messed it up and we had the wrong image. <laughs> and so God had to come by way of Jesus Christ as a as a human being but as God at the same time. It the, the the theological term for that is the hypostatic union. It it means that there is that Jesus had two completely individual natures in himself. He was totally human and totally divine at the same time. What a fantastic plan God had. When when Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat, which nature was working? Sleeping in the boat, what nature? That's his human nature. What about when he got up and calmed the storm? That's his divine nature operating. There's no merging, there's no blending. They're two separate natures, kind of operating somewhat different, sometimes one way, sometimes another, but always there, always existing in the same person. How about uh, when he was hungry? What's that nature? Human nature. What about when he took two lo- two fish and five loaves and fed 5,000 people with it? That's his divine nature. They're just operating simultaneously, interacting back and forth all the time. And what Jesus came to do was to give us a way, as we receive him, he would impart that divine nature into us. Thank God. Praise God. So far, young people, you're all going, just, just the same things happen to your friends who confess Jesus as their Savior. You've got all this in common. This is, you can fellowship with these other young people who are walking in a different way of faith, if you will, and you still have all of this in common. What a tremendous thing. And we can rejoice in that. Hebrews, the second chapter, verses 14 through 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, in other words, we were born under a woman, we partake of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So when he came and we received Jesus into our hearts, he imparted to us the divine nature. And now he, we still have our human nature. The problem is, is that when Jesus's human nature was never contaminated, he was he was born of a woman, but what else what was uniquely different about that birth? It was a virgin birth. In other words, Jesus could not be born of a woman and a and an earthly husband because then he would have had the same nature as we have. So he was born of a woman, so he came into the world exactly the same way we do, and yet in a way that no other human has ever come into the world. <laughs> so it was the same in one way and totally different in another. And that's the way it had to be. And so he came and was, is, was sinless. The scripture said he was attempted in every way as we are, and yet was without sin. And some people say, "Well, he was God. I mean, it had to be easier for him." But I do not believe that, and I can't explain it, and I won't try to explain it, but somehow I believe that Jesus was tempted in ways with of an intensity that none of us will ever experience. <laughs> it may it, it he wasn't He wasn't tempted from within. Satan could only... You know, Jesus said, the the, the prince of this world is coming, but he doesn't have anything in me. We can't say that. Because we have that part of our problem is we are pulled away. As James says, we, we are tempted when we are pulled away to sin by our own lusts. Jesus did not have that. But somehow... I think because of his nature and because of the things that were presented to him by Satan, he felt a temptation that had an intensity that none of us will ever experience. And yet, he was without sin. Kelvin touched on that when he talked about when Jesus was tempted in the the wilderness. Yes, he was hungry. He had not eaten in 40 days. He was tempted for our hunger. He was tempted with power. He was tempted with, you know, showing how godly he was by throwing himself off a building. And the angels would, the angels would take care of him. We don't, we don't have any real knowledge, I don't think, of what kind of, how that temptation affected him. But yet, he was without sin. And that's what made him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So far, we're all the same with our friends. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 2 and 15. 2 Corinthians 2 and 15. Jesus did not lay aside his divinity when he came to earth. He became became something uh, that was... He was the second person of the Trinity. And he became something he had never become before. And that was human and divine at the same time. Up to that time, he had just been divine. He had not become human. His divine nature was a permanent change. Jesus did not just come to earth, take on human form, and then when he went back to heaven, he went back as a spirit, and he's there as a spirit. He's got he's got a resurrected body. And he is in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father in that resurrected heavenly body. And when he comes back, he's coming back in that resurrected heavenly body. <laughs> that change it was not reversible. When he became human and when he became and and divine at the same time, that was a permanent change. The only thing he laid aside when he came to earth was his heavenly glory. And that he did lay aside temporarily. John seventeen four through five says this I have glory this is Jesus speaking. I have glorified you on earth, speaking, praying to the Father. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The disciples got a glimpse of that glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw that momentarily. But that's... That's the glory that Jesus has upon him now as he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. So far, just same for all your friends. You can fellowship on that level. You can rejoice in that level. Okay, here's where the potential difference begins. I was thinking when Brother... Kelvin was ministering the other morning, he had a two-parter. <laughs> and I kept thinking, you know, the, the, the end of the first part is going, to be, is going to seem incomplete until he gets to finish the second part. But when he finished that first part, we could take that as one message and go with that. And but Calvin is not totally satisfied with leaving it there. He still has more that he wants to add to that because it's incomplete like it is. There's a there's a sense of completeness, but it's not it's not totally complete yet. And so this is the way it is with the Lord and with us. And he says this, he writes this in Romans, the 8th chapter, verses 28 through 30. And we know, and we know, so he's saying we know this, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. One thing we have to keep in mind is, is that God has a purpose. He has a purpose and He calls people according to that purpose. He doesn't, and it, he doesn't call us just to save us from our sins. The saving us from our sins is so He can do the rest of the thing He wants to do with us. <laughs> so He says, those who are called according to His purpose... For whom He foreknew, what does foreknew mean? Knew ahead of time. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Here we are back to Genesis. This is his purpose all along that he would have many brothers and sisters after the image of himself as seen perfectly through his son, Jesus Christ. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now there's a lot that we don't understand about this. But God has foreknowledge that we don't have. So he looks into the future and he sees those who will respond to his call. And you might think, well, am, am I called? I'm, a, I'm here because my parents were here. They brought me to church. I'm a, 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 what? Maybe he called them. What about me? Well, it says, all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. As I was meditating on that scripture this morning, I was taking a walk early, and it just popped into, I hope it was the Lord that put it into my mind. God was working all things together for good long before your parents were born or you were born or whatever. He was it wasn't just working together for good in our lives right now which is true but he was working together he saw all of you in his mind's eye before all of this was created and he just happened to put these things together with the right parents and all that kind to, to get to get you where you are today. Amen. Now who does this call go out to? Who does it go out to? It says the call goes out to all who love God. Your friends may love God too. But God knows something. We're not here to judge that others are, others are called, uh, we're called and others are not called. We don't know. That's not our business to know that. We can't say that some of your friends who are Christians who don't go to this church or don't understand it, but God has seen, God looks ahead and He knows, He chooses and He predestines Based on His foreknowledge. And you are here, I hope you're here, because you sense that call of God in your life. The same call goes out to everybody. Everybody has got the same God Father. Everybody's got the same Savior, Jesus Christ. Everybody's got the same Holy Spirit. Or access to that. And everybody's got the same... Everybody's got the same word. So far, everything's the same. But somehow, there is a call that God goes out... Because He's known you before the foundation of the world was laid. And He has called you for that purpose... Now, you might say, well, why didn't he, why does he not call everybody? I do not know. But I do know this, that we can learn from Scripture some things about the nature of God and the way he does things. One good example, I think Kelvin ministered along this line. I thought he was going to take it to this point. He, he didn't. I'm glad he didn't save it for me, but... But when we think about the account of Gideon, how many of you re- do you remember at least hearing about Gideon? Okay. Well when you know the Midianites were just ramsacking uh, Israel, I mean, they, they couldn't do anything. He could try to grow crops, they'd come in and steal them or burn them or whatever. And they'd steal their cattle. They would just come and just they were just a real annoying. Bunch of people to Israel. And they were hiding, Israel was hiding in the caves, (laughs) trying to hide from the Midianites. I don't know how they kept body and soul together, but I guess God provided for them. But one day God came to Gideon, he was hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat inside to try to keep it away from the Midianites. And God comes in and he says, O mighty man, Gideon, O mighty man of valor. (laughs) <laughs> where's where's the mighty man of power? that's not me? Yeah, you. You know. Now God knew before long before Gideon was born, he had this plan. He had called Gideon for this particular purpose. And so I won't go into all those all details. It's a wonderful account. You ought to go back and just read it like Kelvin was talking. Just sit read, read, read. But here's the thing about it is, When they finally got to the climax here, Gideon had 32,000 people. That's still a really small army compared to what the Midianites had. And so what does God say to him? He says, Gideon, you got too many folks. He said, Here's what I want you to do. He said, Go out, find out who's scared. And the ones that are scared, send them home. He said, For one thing, if if you go in and you do a, you defeat the Midianites with 32,000, the Israelites will say, Aren't we tough guys? You know, we did it ourselves. So God said, Go in and you got too many. He said, so he, he went out. All right, who's who's scared? Twenty-two thousand went home. So there were ten thousand left. God said, "You still got too many." So he said, "Okay, here's what I want you to do. Here's the test. Take them down to the water. Take your soldiers down. They got their packs on and everything. They are holding their armor." He said, "Go down to the water. Tell them to, to tell them to drink." He said, "The ones who." And I'm paraphrasing here, ad-libbing a little bit. The ones who take their packs off, lay their weapons down, get down on their belly and start laughing like a dog, said, send them home. But the ones who keep everything on, got their spear in their hand, got their backpacks on, they're kneeling down, they're drinking like this, and they're keeping an eye on what's coming over the hill. He said, those are the ones you keep. So there were 300 that were left. Three hundred. And through those three hundred, God saved Israel. Amen. Amen. Now why why did he do that? I don't know. I don't know why. But there is a principle in God's nature that says He will always use the few to save the many. And there are many examples of that where God takes a few to save the many. Why does He do that? It's I think part of it is because one thing is He wants it known that He is the one who did the delivery. Yes, amen. Number two is, is He wants those to, that to coordinate with who also believe yes. the same thing. Amen. And through the example of those people, He will save the many. Does that mean He did not like the, the 22,000 plus 9,700 that left? No. He loves them. He wanted to save them. But He used those 300 to do it with. And this is the thing, I think, what God is calling here is He says... There are those that I far knew. In other words, there are 300. These are the ones that I'm going to use to save the rest of them. It's not that I don't like them or I don't love them or I don't want them to be saved. I don't want them to be be brought into the fold or or to enter into the fullness of, of the image of Christ. But there he uses a few to do that. And I guess that's what we're—that's where the difference comes. If you—if you sense that truth about the nature of God and that He has a call on your life, then you're going to you know that He—that's what He wants to use you for. Does it make you any better than anybody else? No. <laughs> it just is. A, just like Gideon, he had no pedigree. He had no. He had no reputation. He he just was chosen by God, and so, you know, I was thinking about this example. Our our uh, our daughter in law, uh, her name happens to be Amy, Amy too, but she gave us my wife and I a gift of of uh, it's called the peach truck, and we get about four deliveries of peaches during the peach season there's only 13 peaches in that box they come specially packed and everything long before we can go to Asheville and get the big juicy peaches these peaches come and they and you they're not maybe quite as big as those peaches but they are a Absolutely luscious peach. (laughs) Texture, color, aroma, juiciness, flavor is wonderful. Now, we enjoyed those 13, those first 13 peaches like they were like nothing else. But in a few weeks, we'll go to Asheville to the farmer's market and we'll get those by the bushel. But there's something Unique and special about those first ones. After a while, there will be no difference between those peaches and the ones that come in later. But there's something unique about them because they're first. And God has prepared a first fruits company. Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So, I'm in James chapter 1. Verse 17 and 18. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But the point I wanted to get there is that he is working to get a first... A first harvest, if you will. And through those, He will do what He spoke about in the 8th chapter of Romans. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. I think the difference the difference that i want you to be aware of is that is that after salvation god wants to take us on a lot further and and that's where the that's where the potential difference is does it mean that nobody else can come along no i mean that's up to god and <clears throat> they can read the same scripture that we do but whether the veil is lifted from their eyes or not That's a different story. But we are who we are. The reason we have have come together is because we see that particular call that God has has called, that He's put forth. And and He does it based on His... He does it according to His good pleasure. In other words, He does does what He he wills. I, I think... There's one other thing that I, I, I want to say. I'm going to skip over some of the stuff that I, I had in mind, but I, so it won't get too long. I, I want to cover, I guess I want to cover something else with you. That God has a plan of salvation, and He has a, a plan to work by the Holy Spirit to help perfect us, to help us to grow up into the maturity or into the image of His Son. And, but He is still not finished. Even to get a whole bunch of people who are mature in the Lord and who are have the character of Christ, as wonderful as that is, He's still not done. <laughs> he's still after now a corporate body made up of many members who f- can function corporately as the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. Now, if you, think, if you think it's difficult getting to the place where we're mature as individuals in Christ, think how difficult it is to get all those people together, <laughs> functioning together as one body. The Lord. Now, that's a mystery beyond anything I can imagine. I think about, if you think about the story of Gideon, and I think when he got down to those 300 people, this is what he did. He said, okay, we're going to get three groups of 100 people each. You're all going to be in a different location. Everybody's going to have a torch, and everybody's going to have a pitcher, and when I give the command, or when the trumpet is blown, everybody at the same time bust their pitcher and shout the sword of Gideon. As I thought about that, I thought if we took 300 church members, divided them into groups of 100, what kind of response would we get if we gave that instruction today? Well, this group says, you know... I hear what you say, but it seems like to me that the thing to do... What kind of picture? We want to use this kind of picture. Because we think this picture is better than the other guy's pictures. And we found a better torch than the one that you recommended. We want to use these torches instead. And instead of saying the sword of Gideon, we want to say the spear of Gideon. That's kind of where we are today, folks. You know? But we have to get past that. When we read that story, we say, oh, isn't that wonderful? But we will have to get to the place where, and God is saying to us, not only do I want individuals, but I want them to come together as a corporate body, and I have a government that must operate that kingdom. And that government is going to require you is going to require submission to the head. And that head is Jesus Christ. Now that's that, that sounds fine. Okay, we'll all obey Jesus Christ. But what about obeying your husband or your father in the home? What about obeying your what about obeying the elders? What about the elders obeying the traveling brethren? What about the traveling brethren obeying Christ? Well, we'll just obey Christ, but can we bypass this government? Let's just, everybody just have, God says, no, that's not going to be the kingdom system. And so, he tells us that we have to be able to operate, we have to learn to operate in this government system that God is established for his kingdom. And that's what, he's, that's what he's trying to do today with us. Maturing us as individuals and at the same time helping us come together as a corporate body. So where do we have, where's the field that we work in? Well, husbands and wives can operate, learn to operate in unity. That's not always easy to do. Children obeying their parents. That's not always easy to do. But we can practice unity there. And we have to learn to operate and practice in that unity. Following the direction of the elders when when we think we know a better way. For the sake of unity, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. You know, get, get down to the nitty gritty. We will have to lay down our own way in order... For God to complete what He wants to do, we have to learn to operate in that government. Maybe the people operating in headship will make mistakes. They probably will. We'll make mistakes along the way. We will try to, we will try to do like Kelvin said. We will face issues and we will say, God, you've been silent, we'll, we'll figure it out ourselves. You know, we got to do something. And that Satan's temptation is always just get you to do something. You know, do something. Don't wait on God. But God wants us to wait on Him. I, I want to just cover this one thing in closing. And that is, I want to ask these young ladies sitting up here, and all the ladies in the church, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you know why you're wearing a head covering. I I wonder. I wonder. Now I'm not saying, you know, you could say out of obedience or because I'm supposed to submit to my husband or what. It goes much deeper than that, young people. For those who do not understand the government of God, head covering means... You have missed a whole point. What God is saying to us in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to paraphrase because in the interest of time, but God is showing us a principle of kingdom government. And He says, He gives this order. He says, Christ must obey the Father. The Father is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man must obey Christ. And man is the head of the woman, so the woman must obey the man. At every intersection there, there can, God is saying to us, there can only be one head. In this government that that we that, that I'm going to have in the kingdom and you you've got no clue as to the responsibilities that is are going to be asked of you we think we're going to be ruling and reigning and everybody's going to be bowing down to us no we got the wrong idea
1: it is going
0: to be a ruling of servanthood. Amen. It's going to be setting examples by taking the lower place. Yeah. And Jesus, as is as said in, in, in the third chapter of Philippians, or second chapter of Philippians, it said, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who thought it not something to be grasped after to be equal with God. But it says, but He was God. But at the same time, in order to show us the example of the government of the kingdom, he says, I'm laying down that prerogative. Doesn't mean he didn't have the same deity that God had, but somehow he was able to lay that aside and not depend on it. That's why he had to spend so much time with the Father during his lifetime trying to figure out what the Father wanted him to do to make sure he was saying and doing. And there's probably a dozen scriptures from the New Testament where He says, I only did, I only say, only what the Father told me to say and do. And this is God Himself. He's demonstrating to us that even though we can have the nature of Christ in us, maybe even a fullness of the nature of Christ, and yet this government of the kingdom is going to require one head at every place. And what he says to the woman is, he says, I am singling you out in order to show in an outward form what the principle of my kingdom government is. And that is that you are saying to the angels in heaven that we have laid our head down we have set our head down and we acknowledge the head of the man he but you are representing the principle that exists at every level in God's kingdom you are representing man's laying down his head before Christ and Christ laying his head down before God the Father And this is of tremendous irritation to Satan and his angels. Because the church is saying through the women in the church that we have given God what you were unwilling to do. We have chosen of our own free will to lay our head down in order to honor the the headship of the man or the headship of the husband when you put that on it is it is a lot more than just saying well you know i'm i'm submitting to my husband that's what it is oh it's so much more than that god is giving that outward sign for the whole world to see that that god has gotten has, has obtained in his church what he never got from Satan. And it just really galls Satan to see that what he's tried to what he's tried to, to, to usurp the authority of God, the Church of Jesus Christ has said, we're having none of it. We're having none of it. We, are, we want to be part of that kingdom that God has. Has has called us to. So I, I i want you to. I want you, particularly you young people, to know when you wear that head covering, it's an announcement to, I, I guess, the good angels rejoice and the bad angels take offense. But however it goes, that that is happening, and there's there is a realm in the spirit that we know nothing about. But it's as absolutely as real or more real than the realm in which we live, and we need to appreciate that and know that. But I guess I just wanted to just wanted to say a little bit about the fact that we have so much in common with our with our other brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can enjoy fellowship. We do not have to as long as they're walking right, you know, we can have fellowship with them and we can appreciate them, we can enjoy them. But if they ever ask you, well, why do you do what you do? You can say, well, you know, we believe that God has called us to something that goes beyond just our salvation. Oh, really? What's that? Well, come to church and we'll tell you about it. <laughs> but... And, you know, some people will. God, God knows who are out there right. that He wants to call. We don't know, Amen. so therefore, we, you know, we we stand ready to to give an account, you know, for ourselves and what God has has done for us. So maybe we could just stand together and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for for the plan of God, for the purpose of God. Lord, Your ways are perfect. Your purposes, Your purpose is perfect. And Lord, we thank You that we're a part of that, that You have called us to be a part of it. You've told us to make our calling and election sure. We're not to just uh, coast uh, by any means, but we also... We also want to thank you that that we can walk with you and that you would actually you would actually think that we would be worthy to be able to participate in the great plan of God. Lord, we thank you that you told us in the 8th chapter of Romans in the first verse. You said there is therefore no condemnation To them which are in Christ Jesus. Lord, sometimes if we don't walk according to the Spirit, we get self-condemnation. But you never can't, you said that you didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through you might be saved. If we are in Christ, and we are, if we have received, you have placed us, you have seated us with Christ. In heavenly places. And therefore, there is no condemnation. Maybe a conviction from time to time by the Holy Spirit. But that's just to get us off the uh, where we drifted off the path and get us back on the path. But hallelujah, your blood has covered us to where there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are in Christ Jesus. Father, we, we we pray for every person here, young or old or whatever. But Lord, we we are a special we have this special interest in our young people because it is through these young people that this this move of the Spirit, this unfolding revelation, will keep unfolding. By your Spirit through them, on and on until that day in which you the fullness of time is come and you come that second time, where every eye will see you, Lord. We just we thank you for your your goodness to us. Thank you for letting us uh, do something in in, in the in the kingdom on your behalf, Lord. We just uh, we love you. And we pray that we will be faithful and walk with you carefully all the days of our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like more information about the moving of God's Spirit or resources for your spiritual life, please visit our website at www.globalmissionsinc.org.